So this podcast is being recorded on World Suicide Prevention Day. I am with Clint Adams, the author of Lighting the Blue Flame. And we're going to chat about your story and your book. And I'm really excited to have you on board today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate your time. Let's rip in. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want, and should know about health, fitness, nutrition, and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent, or manage any injury, disease, or other health-related condition. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hydroxyburn Shred Ultra, nootropic thermogenic. Shred Ultra is scientifically engineered to shred body fat, ignite metabolism, and boost all-day energy while enhancing cognitive performance, focus, clarity, and mood. It combines powerful fat-burning thermogenics, Garcinia, green coffee bean, guarana, caffeine, and an industry-leading four grams of acetyl L-carnitine with potent nootropic ingredients at effective therapeutic doses to give you maximum results. Welcome to Body Science HQ, the world of fit, happy, and healthy. And today with me, Clint Adams, author, executive coach, suicide prevention advocate. You design programs around resilience, leadership, mental health, and you're implementing that through workplace and schools at the moment. And I thought, well, I actually came across you on LinkedIn. I did try and get your book. Thank you very much for handing one to me. Where can people grab your book from? Oh, you can just look it up. Google it, Amazon, Goodreads, lots of different platforms have them. There's obviously a Kindle version as well. Obviously, with COVID at the moment, uh, it's it comes from the UK, so it's a little bit of a delay getting to Oz, but yep. uh, I think it's a couple of weeks. But yeah, if you can just look it up on Google and Amazon, definitely have it. Nice. Lighting the blue flame. Let's hear your story, mate. Like, Let's go straight into You wrote this book, 10 Ways to Help Prevent Suicide. Mm-hmm. Big topic. That's an e-book I did uh, based on some blogs I did a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I was working in, in Nauru at the time with asylum seekers and, and doing mental health programs there for our own employers and to also help the asylum seekers in terms of you know, not wanting to self-harm and, and working with those things. So at the time, you probably see on Facebook and stuff, people are doing these 25 push-ups for mental health stuff. Yep. A lot of the guys were doing that, which is great for awareness, but I kind of wanted to add to that. So I did some stuff. Uh, a few of the guys who'd been in the army had lost some mates through suicide. And so, you know, it was quite topical. And I started just doing blogs and, and little articles, I guess, that would help people give them some actual tools to maybe try some different things and, and look at different ways of, of helping each other and supporting each other, as well as, you know, some self-help. Some people don't want to talk about it and they've kind of, you know, we want to try and change that. But Absolutely. at the same time, we want to give them some things to maybe try and, and maybe get them through a tough time and that kind of thing. So that's how the ebook came about. That you can check on my LinkedIn, it's available for anyone. Yep. It is part of this book as well. So it's actually the last chapter in Lighting the Blue Flame is that ebook because I use it as a, a self help kind of component for people as part of the book as well. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit different from the original. Mm-hmm. So I had to change some stuff in there. I had some different links in there, which obviously, uh, you know, you have to rights for and that kind of stuff so I had to make some changes but essentially it, it, it kind of evolved into what it is and, and is part of, of lighting the blue flame as well. And can we just stand on that why did you call it lighting the blue flame? So I run a program so over the years I've worked in, in HR and doing a lot of change management work in a number of different roles a number of different organisations and for me it's, it's it started off as part of a leadership or originally started off as me when I was a counsellor I would work with people and, and I call a program which I've developed 
develop a red brain, blue brain. It's about getting people to understand a bit more about what's happening in their brains when they're interacting with each other and how they're feeling at certain time. And the red brain is basically the amygdala-based fight or flight stuff yep. where, you know, it's not bad for you, but if you get stuck there, it can be very you bad. You don't want to get stuck and, there. And you get bad habitual kind of habits of the way you think. And then I focus on something called the blue brain, which is the frontal cortex where you do kind of your future thinking and your problem solving and all that kind of stuff. So that's where the blue comes from. The flame itself, I've always had this view that, you know, um, if you want to be a leader and you want to create a spark and get your team and then, you know, you kind of create the spark and you become the flame and, and essentially pass it on and the way you, you get leverage is when everyone else is then passing it on. So that's where the flame component comes from. And so for me, the book is seen as um, my way of, you know, if you think of counselling where you're helping a one-on-one person or maybe small groups of three or four or stuff like that, you can only get to those people. I see that the book is a way of getting to more people through a kind of different way through the book. The book has lots of QR codes. I try to make it a bit more interactive. So if yeah, you want to nice. know more about things, you can link to those things and, and that kind of stuff. So I see the book as, as, you know, as me lighting the blue flame for lots of other people to go and then do their own things. Because part of the book is there's, there's many ways to the top of the mental health mountain, if you like, mm-hmm. where you can do lots of different things, but understanding why those things work and what you're trying to do in the person's headspace and the person's physical space is, is a big part of, of the programs that I run and a big part of, of the book itself. Yeah, that's kind of how the title come about. Nice. Before we chat about the book, because it's really topical where we're going there, do you want to share your story on becoming an author? Sure. Because every author I talk to has a really unique and a great story and it's not easy. Yeah, I absolutely. Look, the book did take me six years to write, yeah. so it wasn't an overnight, let's get done kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It probably started, so my background, I studied psychology at, at university once I left high school with the view, and this is, I'm probably showing my age here, but <laughs> this is around the time of Science of the Lambs and all that kind of stuff where profiling and that was kind of new, it was big, it was very exciting. And so I got kind of, you know, really wanted to get into that space. They didn't have the same courses we have now, but essentially that's why I did psych originally was then to try and join the police force and get in the policing side of, of psychology and doing profiling and criminology and all that stuff. So I joined up with Victoria Police and I guess my, my time as a police officer was, you know, you do the general duty stuff, you go into people's houses and stuff and it was really struck me of, you know, you see these young kids who come from homes that aren't so great, parents aren't very great and you just go, this poor kid has got no chance of, you know, not no chance but they're pushing it uphill so to speak yeah. because of of the environment that they're in and, and for me, you know, it always stuck in me of how you kind of help people and, and that kind of stuff. But then I had a one particular instance where I had a, a young lady who was in our cells and I was looking after the cells. You have stints in the police, depending on what station you're in, but people would come into the cells to get ready to go to court, courthouse right next door. So, you know, trapped all underneath kind of thing, take them into court. And then they'd spend time with us in the cells for a period of time while their cases were going on. And this particular lady was by herself in the cells. So there was no one to talk to. The other, because obviously more males than, than females come yeah. through the cells. So I got talking to her about her life and, and some of the stuff that went with that. And at the time, I was studying counselling, rehabilitation counselling at Sydney Uni at the time, even though it was based in Victoria. There was only a uni at that stage that did that kind of work because I got really interested in the counselling side of, of psych as well, which I didn't do as much of at the first uni. And so I wanted to improve on that. So while I was talking to her, it was around, she'd been an heroin addict. She was only in her early 20s. She had a very young baby, was now with her parents. She knew she was definitely going to go inside this time because she'd had a suspended sentence over her head and obviously still was stealing and doing all the wrong things. So a big part of that conversation with her, um, you know, I talked to her about what she could focus on. You know, if you can, you know, you, if you want to get back on track, you can't change what's happened now, really getting that. And I was kind of using some techniques that I'd, I'd, I'd heard 
through the course and, and that kind of thing. Anyway, she ended up, I think she got nearly two and a half years or three years. And I didn't think too much afterwards. She'd left the cells and obviously goes to jail where she's got to be. Anyway, about a year later, I was doing a run. I used to do a couple of regular runs where I lived. And um, all of a sudden, this, I saw this person waving me down coming out of this house and ended up being her. She'd put on a lot more weight. She looked really healthy. And yeah, it was kind of, I was like, oh, okay, I recognized her. And she said, oh, look, I saw you running past a few days ago. And I was kind of watching the patterns and the time. And, and I was, you know, lucky I saw you. And for people that obviously can't see me, I'm a, I'm a fairly dark person. So I'll probably stand out a little bit. So she recognized me. And so she said, look, I just wanted to stop you because she said, you know, after we had that time in, in the cells and, and uh, had that conversation, she said, I really took it on board. I really focused on what I wanted to do and, and really kept running through my head the stuff we talked about and that, that you helped me with. And said, I turned it around. I was out in just over 12 months. Didn't have to do the whole time. She had good behavior. She had her child back. She was the, the house that she came running out of was her parents. So she was getting back into the workforce kind of stuff. And she just said, oh, you know, it made a massive impact on, on my life. And so I kind of got quite emotional at the time and, you know, really thought about what I wanted to do. As much as I'd been an officer, I wanted to kind of really get into that helping space. Uh, and, and so over my career, that was a big turning point. I really then pushed really hard to get into the counseling stuff. I left the police force, had to take a pay cut and all that. You make decisions based on where you want to go with it and that kind of stuff. Yeah, like I was giving awesome. up a career to do something different. And so I guess that's where a lot of the book kind of thing started was having that exposure to these disadvantaged people and kids and stuff and then also helping this young lady and then really focusing on well, what are you know asking questions of me what do I want to really put out there and stuff like that so over the years I, I had a number of different roles but it's always been in like a change management space I always went to say well when I'm doing my HR roles when I'm doing my counseling well, I went into counseling for about two years with a company then the police poached me back to do the counseling and stuff for them because I was work you know doing a lot of work with the police anyway from this private company and so you know I had a lot of exposure to dealing with one-on-one people with PTSD people who'd had physical injuries but the mental part was really affecting them because they you know they, they're now disabled and, and and all this kind of stuff so a lot of the insights from the counseling days then just flowed on into HR like I, I kind of accidentally fell into HR won't bore you with that story but I was helping out the assistant commissioner at the time to turn a team around that were just dysfunctional and the manager basically quit and they just weren't getting anywhere so I involved a um, an org site to come and help us do that and that's how I got into change management and, and could see how the psychology and the teams and the, the individual stuff all, all go hand in hand and so you know over the years I've put together a, a number of different programs to help more, more managers and leaders uh, at a work level yep. but at the same time a lot of the tools that I've I'm an avid reader of all this kind of stuff anyway I did courses on human synergistics have you ever heard of them no I haven't. so human synergistics is a company that does 360 degree feedback so from teams so it's, it's generally a tool sorry aimed at teams and and groups and managers to improve how they manage people and, and get the best out of themselves as leaders and then the best out of their teams and stuff like that. And they run this uh, 360 degree feedback based on something called the circumplex, but essentially it's it's got 12 components to it where it's focused on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's basically saying that the, the results is very clear and they do this all around the world and they have a kind of benchmarking and they compare managers all around the world and they look at how effective they are from the least to the highest and what profiles look like based on you know who's the best and, and what's not yep. the best. And, and one of the clear things that comes out of it is you see anybody that's really stuck in the fight or flight, so people who are highly aggressive or people who are too timid, for example, they tend to be in the lowest 10%. Okay. And it's glaringly obvious when you kind of piece together the stuff that I've been talking about and then you see the end result. Now we're talking adults and you're going, well, why is that? And so the more I kind of got inquisitive about that, I go back to my counselling days, 
open up a lot of questions. And then I started doing a lot of work around the neuroscience, neuroplasticity and, and stuff like that, where you can kind of see if you're doing certain things at certain times and developing certain skills to not get stuck in that area, then you're going to develop yourself. So when I would do stuff with the managers and, and get their results back, the coaching piece was about getting them to do those things. And then I started thinking about, well, how can I do that earlier for younger kids who, you know, these are people that are working usually in management that already got some skills, yeah. you'd hope anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what can I do to, to do that earlier for younger people who are disadvantaged like the kids I've mentioned that, you know, I'd go into the houses of and they don't have good parents and how can I leverage that through the school system and blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of where the book came into much more of an idea. Yep. I, I started off doing it as a school program. One of the roles I had was working for a place called Colac Area Health, which was a big hospital and lots of the community health centres around uh, down in Victoria. You know, I got to see as part of the executive team, I got to see a lot of statistics that showed really young people on antidepressants. I'm talking 10, 11 years old. Really? Kids who are on drugs and coming off it on methadone programs at the age of 13 and 14. And then I talked to the community nurses and they're telling me, you know, stories of kids that have attempted suicide and how they're helping them with that. And so I really thought, well, what can we do different? What can we do to help with that? So I developed a school program back then and kind of pitched it at a few schools, local schools. Uh, I involved the police back then. I had obviously a lot of contacts in the police. Yep. And so we kind of looked at, at ways we could develop that and do things more and, and actually got it in front of a politician at the time. And they were really interested in looking at funding for it. Unfortunately, they lost the election. And so I had to kind of do it all over again. And when you're working full time and you're running this stuff, you know, I'm sure you, you probably know you're going to pitch stuff, how, yeah. how, how much time and effort it takes. So I kind of shelved it for a little while. But then there was a, a high profile suicide in the news of a young girl. And it just got me saying, oh, no, I've got to do something more with it. So I changed my approach because I actually realized that as much as, you know, we've got our politicians, they're actually not subject matter experts on this stuff. Absolutely. And so they hold the purse strings. But essentially, you know, you've got to go and sell it to them. You've got to get them over the line and do that. And I thought, no, you're much better off doing it as getting people excited about something because it's different. The approach is a lot different from, you know, and I, I know a lot of counsellors. I know a lot of people that do a lot of training on mental health and mental health first aid. And the stuff in here is a little bit different to those things. There's a lot of ones that give you things to do, but what it doesn't probably do is explain the why part of it. I listened to your podcast with Luke the other day and he was talking about, you know, his uh, Carlos, yes. um, which is just, you know, his, uh, his basically his unconscious mind, really, he's talking to it. And it's, it's essential that people understand that doing what he was doing and saying those things, why those things actually work for some people and understanding how your neurons are wiring and firing as you're doing some of those things and why those things then go into um, creating habits for you in a better way yep. and all that kind of stuff. And there's lots of different things just like creating a Carlos kind of thing that also can help with that. There's a number of different avenues. So for me, I, I kind of took all that knowledge, put it together in the book and wrote a story around a person. So I wanted to make it relatable for all ages and I want to also show how just one suicide affects lots of people. So this person you talk about committed suicide. Correct. So, yeah. this, so this book is not based on a real person. Sorry, it is based on a real person to some point, but yeah. obviously the names are different. Absolutely. Uh, lots of the experiences are different and a lot of it's based on quite a lot of the counselling work that I've done. Obviously, I don't talk about who's who yeah. and, and all that's fictitious, but essentially I wanted to, to get people to understand how this works, how people get to a state that they're in and then also they get stuck, but then ultimately work on. So there were two parts. So one was how you get the school kids and everyone that's involved around the suicide to kind of deal with the death of this person, but then also what do you do as a school, as a person to make sure, or not make sure, but try to make sure that it doesn't happen again and, 
and what can you then put in place so that it doesn't happen going forward and, and what kinds of things. Are, so that's where I bring the school program back into it. So I'm a character in the book as me running my program. So that's kind of, you know, how I, I thought you can kind of make it. It has to be a little bit more interactive. So the book has a lot of QR codes through it. So you can hyperlink. Like I do talk, I try to minimize the amount I talk about in terms of the psych stuff like, yeah. you know, neurotransmitters and stuff like that. But essentially the QR codes can also hyperlink to areas for people if they want to go so and find out. knowledge, you can find it, yeah. Correct, That's correct. Because I, I refer to a few different models. Again, it's just like a reference, but it's a quicker reference, so you can you can hyperlink to, to those things uh, a lot easier. But yeah, that's basically how the book came about. Nice. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hydroxyburn Shred Ultra, nootropic thermogenic. Shred Ultra is scientifically engineered to shred body fat, ignite metabolism, and boost all-day energy while enhancing cognitive performance, focus, clarity, and mood. It combines powerful fat-burning thermogenics, Garcinia, green coffee bean, guarana, caffeine, and an industry-leading four grams of acetyl L-carnitine with potent nootropic ingredients at effective therapeutic doses to give you maximum results. So suicide prevention, mm-hmm. is that something very close to your heart? Is it, What's what's the driver there? For, I mean, you're a very passionate person. <laughs> I can just tell that you, and you've done so much good. I mean, the book and the things that you're doing and the, the market you aim at, and there would have been no playbook there. Like you're just going, <laughs> first man in, I'm going to try, yeah. see what happens. Suicide prevention, like that topic, is that, how did that grab you? Yeah, look, I, I had a friend when I was in my early 20s who committed suicide, one of my best friends. Uh, unfortunately, it was just as I was joining the police academy and I didn't get to see him for a few months prior to it so there's kind of a and there's a lot of questions you ask about you know if I had known that he was struggling mm-hmm. and blah 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 so it is close to my heart in, in, in that way uh, also it was kind of heartbreaking to see you know his parents and how they reacted because that's you know again they're even more you know questions and, and, and that's the thing about it it's, on, on the surface you, you wouldn't have picked it like there was a lot of, like oh, I went back to them and said look I haven't seen him for a couple of months obviously I'm at the police academy and blah 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 but you, you know they were saying well we didn't see any of those things he had a steady uh, relationship with his girlfriend. He had he was doing an apprenticeship with Ford at the time, and and seemingly didn't seem to be having that many issues. Having said that, he was also quite a heavy smoker of um, of weed, so um, you know uh, wasn't my thing. Obviously, it doesn't help to go to the police force doing that no. stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, whether that had an impact, I guess we don't know. You know, he left a note, but it wasn't kind of very specific around. It was more just how he was feeling rather than what was causing that feeling. And so, but yeah, look that. That definitely sits with me. But yeah, I think essentially it's a combination of all those things where, you know, you've had different touch points and, and met different people. And, and at the end of the day, you, no one wants to see a child or any person for that matter, but especially, you know, young kids who've got all their lives ahead of them to, to go and take their own lives and, and, and finalize, you know, something that, that may be a temporary issue or, you know, not even less than temporary might not actually be an issue. They've just kind of made it that way. Because one of the things we'll cover in the book is how we can turn things into other things when, you know, you're by yourself and you ruminate over something. And this is why online bullying and stuff like that is such a big thing for for young people, especially because there's parts of the brain that isn't fully formed yet when you're a child. Some of the things that they see and that they, you know, takes them to a place that they probably didn't need to end up on if they had a slightly different view of, of what that comment was or, or that kind of things. So it's important that people understand that. And, and a lot of this is also about what parents should be doing or, or at least helping with. I did a, a uh, an article today just on, 
you know, the unconsciously incompetent parent where if you, if you can't help yourself at, at a mental health level, I'm not saying, that, you know, and you, you're really not that competent at it, well, how are you going to be able to help your kids and, and help them? That's waterfall, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I guess part of this is about saying it's fine to be unconsciously incompetent, but when you become consciously incompetent, you go, holy smoke, I don't know any of this stuff. So the stuff I run when I do Red Brain, Blue Brain, for example, you know, it's mainly at the workplace. So you've got adults, you know, anything from 18-year-olds right up to, you know, 55, 60-year-olds working in different environments. And whenever I've run this, it's very rare that anyone's ever had any kind of this training and they look at you it's like, wow, where did that come from? I didn't know anything about myself. I don't really think about my thoughts. I don't really think about how I've developed a habit of thinking, how I've even had a, a what I call an undercurrent, which people think is their personality, but because of neuroplasticity, you can actually change a lot of that stuff. We just reinvent ourselves the same way every day. And so you, you end up just, that is what you think is your personality, right? And so people don't even understand that stuff and how they develop who they've become and how they can focus. And this is the stuff that, that you guys were talking about with Luke the other day, him creating Carlos is him taking control of his unconscious brain. Yep. And that's all he's doing is directing it with intent. Yep. And that's the point. So anything that helps you do that, whether you create Carlos or some other approach to it, is about changing that focus rather than being stuck in where whatever's causing the problem with you. Wow. Wow. So inside the book, I open the cover up, what am I going to find? Like I say, it's a story of a young boy. It starts off with him killing himself. Chapter one is him explaining he's being bullied. And, and if you read the back, it pretty much covers the first few pages. But essentially, he, he kind of takes you through why he's feeling the way he has. He's been bullied, physically humiliated. So we're talking rage and blame and- All yep, those things, yep, yeah. Okay. So he's in a position now where he's made the decision he's going to do it. He decides before he actually does it, he's going to send some videos to some people. One is the bully. Uh, one is some people that he thought were his friends who stood by and laughed and, and that kind of stuff. And, and as much as they didn't do anything specifically to him, they helped encourage the bully. And on top of that, he then also sends it to principal and the teachers of what they did or didn't do. And he sends one to his mother because he knows his mother struggles with her own kind of demons and he's concerned that she'll take it badly and so he wants her to be helped along the way. And then he sends one to me because I'm actually a character in the book where I'm uh, helping the school to deal with their leadership stuff, which is what I also do. Mm -hmm. And so because I'm already there and he's aware of who I am and what I've done, he decides to send one to me because he wants to see change from the school. He wants to see that we, someone can help the school and he's kind of looked at, at what I've done in the past, blah, blah, blah. So that's how I, I kind of put it all together and that's how it starts off. And so all these people get these videos and they all have their own reactions to it. At first it's like, oh, he hasn't done it. He's doing this as a joke kind of thing and then he's not at school and then there's an announcement that, you know, well, you know, why isn't he here? What's going on and all this kind of stuff. And so I really want to put that into people's heads around, you know, what the bully's thinking. Now, the bully He's going, hell, I, you know, I'm doing it for a few laughs. I don't want to see anyone dying. And, uh, and so he has to deal with that part of it. So I, I then come in as, as the counsellor for, the, for the, the bully. How am I going to help him? Because also there's a bit of a backstory around the bully. A lot of bullies have been bullied themselves. They might have parents who were bullies. So now it's, this is their way of acting out, I guess, taking control for themselves and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I kind of help each person in a different way. So the mother, I, I go and help her with how she grieves. And I take her through a process of, look, it's happened. Not a great thing. You find your son dead at home and, and he's taking his own life. How do you deal with that? Right? So there's that part of the process. And, and and so, yeah, there's a number of factors that come in. And then after that, it's about a lot of the students want to be involved. They go, okay, you've been to the funeral and all that kind of stuff. But now how can we be involved so this doesn't happen again? Because we, we feel bad, but we want to also be involved. So part of, you know, when I do leadership programs with managers, for example, I, I take them through, well, what do you think caused it? You know, I take them through um, even thinking about 
about how to do get to root cause analysis stuff, which we use in, in a lot of work environments, but you can still apply that kind of approach to any problem. So I get them thinking about how they come up with solutions. These are all what I call blue brain experiences. Yeah. When you're problem solving and you're thinking of ways to do things better, it's also a distraction for the people. So I, I cover off in the book, you know, where if you understand how your amygdala, when it does the fight or flight works, obviously your blood drains from your head, goes into your muscles, get you ready for fight or flight. So you actually don't have as fully an oxygenated yeah, brain yep. uh, in that space. So when I used to do even stuff with the police and do programs there about tactical disengagement where, you know, you're fired up, this person's really had a go at you and, and that kind of stuff and how you calm yourself down, how do you keep yourself in that space? How do you calm the the red brain? Uh, and so there's some special techniques on, on, on how you do some of those things. And, and it's really about asking questions that only your blue brain can answer. So, mm-hmm. you know, high level questions. So that's why if you go, well, how can we solve this problem? You have to think about how I solve this problem. So it forces your blood to pump back up into that big part of the prefrontal cortex stuff. So you're reversing a bit of your gears in terms of physiologically. So when I'm doing this design work, I'm thinking individuals. I'm also then thinking how that works when another person's present because we're very different when we're in a social gathering than when we're by yourself. And so I'm thinking that, but I'm also thinking, well, how's things happening in my body at the time when I'm doing certain things? Like if if we look at different techniques that work, I'm constantly thinking, well, why is that working? Why why does exercise, we know that exercise is great for us physically and mentally, but the question is why, right? But then you go, well, you know, there's different hormones in our body. If you're getting the right ones, you know, oxytocin, the ones that keep you, you know, the love drug and all those kinds of things, there's certain things you do. That's why people that hug people is, you know, they feel better about it because the oxytocin levels are going up and it's automatically proven it, right? And that's why when people have kids, you know, the mum and and the bonding of the child, that hug, that feel, the child's not taking anything else other than feeling at the moment because they can't see or that kind of thing and and they show the oxytocin. So those little things, there's lots of little things that add to our mental health and we could do lots of them at the same time, just like, you know, anything physical. You're eating the right stuff, you're, you're doing cardio, you're doing some muscle stuff, you're doing this, stretching. So all those things add to your physical health. Yeah. Mental health is exactly the same. I think we, we we kind of pigeonhole things that we do and don't think of the multiple things you can do to, to make things happen because I don't think we understand enough about what I'm talking about here in terms of understanding that basic stuff first. Then you can kind of go, oh, because there's, there's lots of things that we're all different. Like some people, you know, have turned things around because they found religion. Some people have turned around and then they go, and, you know, run a marathon or they, yeah. or, or they get a focus or they decide to volunteer their time working for other people or other animals or all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, an important part for me was getting that across that when you understand the building blocks behind it, you can then design these other things along the way. And who are you having more success with, the the older pops, the execs or the kids at school? I haven't really run that many actual ones with the schools recently. I, I've got as close as um, teenagers in, in the sports teams and stuff like yeah. that. So I've been doing suicide prevention uh, sessions with, with some of those guys. But it's got to be an interactive thing. I mean, if I want to talk pure success, I guess, because I've done it so much more at the work level, it's more with the adults. Mm-hmm. But essentially, when I've done it with a lot of the adults, they've come back to me and said, hey, Clint, could you talk to my kid about this? Because yeah, they're awesome. having trouble at school awesome. or stuff like that. So I'll deal with, with them in that way. And then they normally give me feedback on how that's going. So I know that those things are working for them and that they can, you know, at least think their way a little bit differently. It's, you know, you're not going to turn it over overnight kind of thing, but, you know, it's about inching your way to getting to a better place and being able to deal with stuff. Life's not always easy. Yeah. Things are never going to go all our own way, but how we bounce back, how we take that on board. And, and, and that was also a key message in the book around how I make the, how I help the mother deal with, you know, the death of her son and, and what what she wants
wants to then focus on again I, I keep thinking of how do I get her out of a red brain position into a blue brain position so all those things and the techniques are slightly different depending on the person and what they you know where they're stuck and some people can bounce back fine there's you know some people um, I was talking to a guy this morning who I used to work with as a cop and you know we're talking about you know going to a body they were saying one of the guys who, in the security you know he was unfortunately near a kid who, who'd fallen from balconies here a couple of years yeah. ago and he's just never been the same quit the industry and he's a barber now and so you know he just couldn't deal with it and then Nick and I were talking about this stuff and saying well you know, I went to quite a few bodies as a cop and I don't think it's affected me like it should mm. but it hasn't and so I guess for me it's how I've dealt with that you know I guess I've probably had a bit more of this understanding of, of that kind of thing and I, and I kind of can can deal with it a bit better than a lot of people but yeah it's it's just interesting of how we do I guess react and how you know some people just cannot get their way out of it or they don't know enough to do those things that can change that for them it's COVID it's a tough place to be some people are succeeding and and their businesses have changed for the better many people I speak to are struggling um, a lot of people won't even talk about it what do you think is going to happen around mental health with where we're at and I mean governments are fairly indecisive yeah. they're locking borders not locking borders they're doing this there's no long-term plan which people like to yeah although we don't like planning we do like <laughs> to know there is a plan yeah look it's a tough one I think you know anytime and, and if I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs again anytime where people's livelihoods are affected you've got less money you've got less resources and you know you, you're in that red brain space anything that takes you to that space is going to add volatility to the relationships that you're with people around you like you know th there's lots of ways that can look like it can end up in domestic violence can end up in heavier drinking can end up in suicide and so there's a number of things that if you get stuck in that red and you you're fearful things happen and it's not always good because you again you're not thinking with your best brain if you like so you know I'd, I'd like to think that you know there's that the money that they're putting into the mental health initiatives will go to the right people that can actually run programs because unfortunately you know I've, I've been around long enough to know I've heard of programs where you know they have people doing karate and stuff okay there's there's a certain component that might be helpful for yep. for that kind of thing but essentially for me I don't think enough goes into how we help the teachers understand a lot of this stuff a lot better and can get better bang for our buck so to speak because one of the issues you have with counseling for example as I said before it's usually one-on-one -on -one. Mm -hmm. so you get the one person one hour one person whereas if we're leveraging it as a program with say teachers you've got the kids there or at least you know even if it's virtual now at least you've got an opportunity to get to more more at once and more regularly rather than oh, I'm going to see the therapist today and then two weeks later I go see the therapist again and in between like I've been that counselor I've done those things and you know I usually do get them to do homework and stuff not all counselors do that and again I'm not aligned to any psychological theory because I think lots of things can help you get to where you need to get to but you knowing enough to go and explore some other things as well and getting you interested enough to go hmm I didn't know I thought like that I didn't realize I have a pattern like that what can I do so it's about I use the coaching model I would do with managers where I go okay there's some things there in your profile that's not so great here's the feedback you've had from you know your peers and stuff about your behavior and how you're reacting to other people these are some of the things we might want to work on and get them exploring stuff like that to change some of their attitudes and their insecurities and, and sometimes their anger which is what maybe you know gets people not liking them that much as a manager and stuff so it's, it's, it's not much of a different process with with trying to get better things and try different things and look at what skills are going to help them get to that point because when you start to go oh okay like oh, you know I even used to have this where I've, I've tested some of these theories on myself right and so I used to get I don't know what it was but I'd be in a shower and this horrible images would pop in my head as in like let's say demons and horrible stuff yep. right? and over the years as a kid I used to just pop in my head and so you'd be like feeling scared 
scared in the shower because you know there's nothing there right yeah. but it would just pop in there so I, I used to use the the Carlos kind of thing where I'm talking to my my unconscious brain around I call it LJ you know I, I talk to it in a way that I want it to work for me because I mean this is the other thing people don't understand that our unconscious brain our conscious brain our unconscious is there to keep us alive if we have to think about breathing we're in trouble heart, you know your heart beating all that stuff we're in trouble exactly so it just does its thing but at the same time it also is waiting for you to take charge of it so if you don't it'll take charge of you Dr. Joe Dispenza in his book uh, You Are the Placebo he he likens it to being on a wild horse it'll just take you if you don't tell it where to go basically and so it can take you somewhere bad it can take you somewhere good but yep. if you don't take it in and have that control so when you listen to, to what Luke was talking about uh, in your other podcast he calls it Carlos he's directing he's taking control with his conscious brain to control the unconscious brain that's yep. that whole process is exactly that so he's using you know that conscious one to really take control so when he sets his goals and all those things they're all adding to a habit they're all adding to a positive yes. initiative and all that whereas if you just let it go and you have an undercurrent so this is where the kids you know who, who have got those bad homes for example where you go they're surrounded by negativity mum and dad aren't helping the environment's not very stimulating as a child so they they develop this undercurrent and if they if there's a lot of fear and anger around the house they're going to pick up on that and that'll be part of their normal and then fast forward 10-15 years and that's become their undercurrent their, their experiences will be based on their view of, of the world and if their view of the world is that you know it's scary this is where anxiety starts from this is where you know people who are highly anxious they're scared of stuff they don't um, uh, get involved. Some people call it shyness. Yep. It's not always shyness. It's also about avoidance. And so a big part of that human synergistic stuff is the high avoidance ones, which is one of the, the colors. You know, th th there's an impact on, on your personal health, but there's also an impact on how you project yourself to the world and other people that you work with. So that also takes a hit because you might be a great people pleaser and people like you, but you may not get the job done as well as you can. Yep. And if you're the highly aggressive one, on the other hand, you have a problem with relationships because people don't want to work for you. You're not. Nasty, yeah. you're yelling at them, you're not getting the best out of them. And so that also polarizes people. So you have high absenteeism and all that. So they all kind of roll in. But again, all these people have all been kids. And that's part of the reason that I'm focusing in a much different place than I think a lot of the initiatives that I have seen on some of the other ones. Like I've gone and checked out some other courses, see what yep. they're running, see if, hey, am I, you know, and look, I've had some good podcast conversations with some other people who, who do think in the same space as me. And, you know, it's been encouraging to, to hear from them. And look, I'm, I'm not the only new person i'm not an expert on this this is about me just i guess you know looking at trusting my instincts on a lot of this stuff trusting my um my view of okay I, I can always get better at this and i can always know more and if people know more fantastic let's talk let's work together let's you know get get things going better but at the same time i guess i've, I've kind of wanted to push the envelope a little bit and that's where the book's been a bit of a vehicle for me to, to really push that out now so this year i was intended to do this earlier but then COVID hit because the book came out literally two weeks before COVID was here <laughs> Nothing like timing. Yeah. So, look, but look, it's been great. Yeah, I guess we, we go from there. Nice. So, Clint, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like you are just somebody with so much passion. But uh, look, I see in my notes in front of me that ebook, The 10 Ways to Help Prevent Suicide. It's yep. a pretty topical day today. Yep. Do you think we could go through those 10? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no particular order. But yep. uh, essentially, the, the key thing for me is about getting people to understand a bit more about themselves in mm -hmm. terms of how they've learned things, question some of 
their their patterns. I used to get people to do a thoughts diary deliberately. When you're doing analysis work, you're using the blue part of the brain, yep. and it forces you to focus on that. So if if you normally would have you know a bad experience or a bad thought recurring, 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 I get you to do the thoughts diary. So you're interrupting some of that process. So those w- neurons that are wiring and firing when you're thinking about that experience is now slightly interrupted, and now you're doing analysis work, which is again reversing that blood popping back up into your head because now you're thinking, oh, oh, that's right, I'm doing analysis work, I've got to do this, this, and this, and you write something down. So it does a couple of things slowly interrupting. So a big part of the, the initiatives is about understanding how you can interrupt some of those things and then how you can refocus on it. So one of the, the other techniques I use is especially, I call it being the director. Mm-hmm. So this is, we think of a movie, right? So you've had the experience, we've, we've done the, the shot, done the, the movie, but we're not happy with it. So this is what happens when people get stuck in a memory, they're not happy with it, but they don't know how to change it. Yeah. So I say, okay, you're the, you're the director. I want you to play that movie, talk me through the movie, explain it to me as you see it, and then I'm going to make some, you know, let's do some editing. Yeah. What do we want to change? So if you're a cop who's had a gun pointed at your face and that's the experience that you've had and now you're worried about what could have happened to you and all this sort of stuff, yeah. let's play through that and let's put a red nose on the guy or, you know, whatever it is or the little bang thing shoots yeah. out instead of a bullet or whatever those things are. And so there's different techniques about helping you change your own experience. It's showing you you have control because when, when you are in that blue brain space, you're not in a red brain space. Yeah. So again, understanding some of those things is really important. Even little things like you've heard of centering where you just like, you know, you, you stop yourself, you take a few breaths, you put your shoulders back, you adjust your body mm-hmm. posture. So you're thinking about something else, but it's a, it's a, it's interrupting. So it's one, it has to interrupt. Yes. Two, it has to change your focus. And then whatever you do from there can be up to you, whether you, and so, you know, helping people through those kinds of techniques is, is part of this process. The other thing that I talk a lot about is, you know, people always say to me, oh, you know, how do we identify when someone's, you know, maybe going to be suicidal and that kind of stuff? And I say, well, there's a lot of different things that you, you we all know, you know, a person's not looking after themselves, their behavior is totally different to what they're normally like or stuff like that. But for me, the big issue, and this is also in there, is around saying, well, the biggest issue isn't that. People know when they're in pain. People know when they're going to do something and they're legitimately going to say, oh, you know, they're just looking for attention or whatever. If people are at that point where they're about to take their life, they know they're not in a good space. So the bigger question is, why aren't they talking to people? So when I run my sessions, I use something called the dialogue model. Basically, it, it explains, I don't feel safe having the conversation. There's a safety issue for me to have the conversation. I'm now going to take my own life because I'm too scared to go and talk to somebody wow. about this. Yeah. So, you know, when I run stuff with, with team, uh, like younger people, it's important that the parents are there because they're the ones that have to create the safety yeah. for their child to come and talk to them and feel comfortable to go, I'm going to kill myself here. I'm not, I don't want to talk to mum or dad about it or auntie or uncle, depending on, on the situation, right? And so that's a big part of it. Why? And so this is why when I, I talk about unconsciously incompetent parents, when they don't know what they don't know, they don't do anything Yeah. because you don't know. So part of this is about saying, well, we've got to make you consciously incompetent so you go I can't let my kid down you know I've, I've got to do this I've got to at least learn something about this for myself so I can pass it on and I can at least have a conversation with my kid and say no matter what it is ever you come to me you've got a problem we'll talk we'll deal with it but I don't want to get to the point where I go oh my goodness I mean we just had two suicides in Brisbane in the last two months yeah exactly and one was on a I read the article a couple of weekends ago young boy mum and dad no signs none not from a bad home none of that played basketball the day before was fun enjoying himself takes his bike goes and kills himself now you know questions why didn't he come talk to mum and dad what's the fear factor in it for him I mean stuff like are you okay today is great because people are talking about it so at least yeah. there's that conversation
conversation, but it's got to be at the home level. And and are you okay? Day is just a day. Yeah. Like, so what? We don't do it tomorrow. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So and, and and in the workplace as well, it's it's really important to to focus on how you create the psychological safety for people. That's a key thing. Google did the most recent stats on you know good organisations and psychological safety is the key part. And when we developing good relationships, when I'm working with teams that aren't working well together, that's the first piece of work we say, hey, we need to talk about whatever it is that bug each other, how you deal with it. But then at the same time, understanding why you're not having that conversation, yeah. that's a key piece. And so, you know, once we start working on that, and that's one of the reasons I, I use the dialogue model as part of the training for the teachers, they need to understand that so the kids are interacting at a much younger age, they're talking about things in general, and they're getting skills on having the conversations. And if they have the conversations amongst each other about the behavior that they don't like, like at five or six, oh, he pulled my hair. Yeah. Okay, it might sound trivial, but we're having the conversations. And not five years later, when things have escalated, we've already had heaps of conversations about what we don't like and what we do like. The other thing it does for the other kids, the more timid ones, for example, in a group, others have gone before them and had that conversation and they hear it and they're calibrating behavior. Then people, people feel more courageous when someone else goes first. When I run stuff with teams, I usually pick out the loudmouth because they'll say something, right? So you go, hey, mate, when I ask the questions, are you have come, oh, hell yeah, I'll tell them, yeah. right? So you use those guys because then the others get dragged in because there's nothing worse. You throw it out there and they're all too scared and no one says anything. Yeah, exactly. And then you go, right, we've got a bigger problem here. But if you can get one or two saying stuff and then it goes through. And in the book, I, I kind of do that uh, technique in the book and talk through that with, with the students because, you know, I kind of pick on one particular person who, who is a bit more vocal and, and that kind of gets the rest of them talking about things. Wow. That's really awesome. I mean, having that conversation is what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, as a parent, it's really hard to walk into your kids and go, you know, not use the words, are you okay, but are you okay? <laughs> you know, and the big thing for me and Black Dog Institute sent something out today about the do's and don'ts when you have that comment. There's one thing to ask that question, but mm-hmm. if you ask the right questions, you're going to get told yes, and then what do you do next? Yep. And so if people want to reach out to you and contact you or their organization wants to get you on board or a school does, how do they contact you? At the moment, I'm, I'm just on LinkedIn. I'm in the process of getting a website put together. I've only been kind of not doing the, this is a side gig for the last couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been doing a fair bit of promotion stuff like, like we're doing here today, just just talking to the right people and, and getting that out there, talking about that. I've got a couple of different uh, sessions that I will be running over the next few months, which obviously I'll publicize as well. So um, yeah, look, LinkedIn's probably the best way. My phone number's on there, my email's on there. So, you know, Clint Adams on there. You can just look me up there and, and I'm more than happy to have conversations with people. I've been Zooming people all around the world at the moment. Yeah, it's kind of imagine, funny getting yeah. up at four in the morning trying to get people in <laughs> the other side of America. You know, yeah, a- anyone can contact me through that. That's awesome, mate. I really enjoy your LinkedIn and what you're doing on LinkedIn. I mean, that's how I discovered you. And Thank you. I just want to say thanks for coming on. Thank you thanks for, the for having me. Can't wait. Going to introduce you to a few other people I know. I think that'll be um, awesome. great. And you are, you need to get your message out more. Yeah, well, look, I'm definitely uh, d- doing a lot more of that. Yeah, so that's uh, good. I've even been reading a bit more on social media <laughs> and getting that stuff. It's not my strongest point. I'm probably uh, more more in- involved with the people side, but, you know, getting it out there's uh, something I'm not yeah. that great at yet. Absolutely. So that's Clint Adams with an S, lighting the blue flame. Get on board. Thanks for coming on board, mate. Thank you. Everyone, don't be afraid to ask that question if you have to. Awesome. Today's podcast was brought to you by our partners in Fit, Happy and Healthy, ASN, Nutrition Warehouse, DY Discount Vitamins, Fat Burners Only, Evelyn Fay, Mr. Supplement, or find a retailer online at bodyscience.com.au forward slash retailers.